Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Wake up, America, wake up! The political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. Uh, On this show, we are exploring uh, what it takes to make real change in a country that is as divided as we've become here in the United States. I'm Van Jones. Look, today we are continuing our discussion on climate change which is one of the biggest and and most urgent issues of our time. It's also one of the most divisive and controversial. And I know that we can do better on this issue, and I'm going to prove it because I've got a guest today that you probably don't expect. It's a man named Cecil Roberts. Cecil Roberts is a sixth-generation coal miner. He's the president of the United Mine Workers of America, a very powerful labor union. And the reason you might not expect this conversation is because people have been pitted against each other on this issue and on so many issues. You haven't always had a room for for nuance and and real, you know, deep conversation because people have been put in a corner of either you're for the environment or you're for workers. If you want to have a clean environment, you're going to put a bunch of people out of work. If you want to have work, you got to put up with pollution. Pick. And I feel like that is literally asking me to choose between my children and my grandchildren. If I want to feed my children today, I got to you know, make sure there's a ruined planet for my grandchildren tomorrow. Or if I want to have a good planet for my grandchildren tomorrow, I got to starve my kids today. I think these are false choices. Uh, I think this stuff is ridiculous. And Cecil and I are actually living proof that you can care about people and the planet at the same time and work together. Back in 2013, Cecil and I actually got arrested together at a protest to keep coal miners from getting their health care and their pension stolen by big coal companies. And that was a life-changing moment for me. And we, we're going to talk about it. But, you know, I came to that protest, fired up, ready to chant, ready to march, do all the stuff we do, you know, in the blue cities when we protest. And I realized something. Nobody else was chanting. And the reason for that, somebody pulled my coat a lot of the guys there, and they were mainly men, had black lung disease. They had emphysema. They had lung cancer from having spent so many years, literally years, underground in those mines. That really struck me. These people had broken their bodies. They had given their, their lungs and their limbs and often their lives to keep the lights turned on for the rest of us in the United States. And now here they were with the big coal companies they had worked for trying to steal their right to see a doctor or steal their right to retire in peace just so these coal companies could you know, save some money. I'm not a big fan of burning coal, but a sick, retired coal miner is not polluting anybody and anybody in America should be able to see a doctor. So I decided to get involved in the fight. And I'm so glad that I did because I learned something and I saw something that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. And one of the things that, that wouldn't have happened is I would have never made a friend like Cecil Roberts. And so you're going to hear us. We're going to get into it. We're going to talk about, 
are there ways that we can address climate change seriously without completely eliminating all the jobs in the coal industry? Cecil actually has got some pretty interesting thoughts about how burning coal is actually necessary uh, to further the green agenda. Now, some of Cecil's ideas I agree with, some of them I don't, but we are not going to get anywhere on any issue in this country or in this world if we are not open to at least understanding each other. So hang on to your hats. Stay tuned for my conversation with Cecil Roberts. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I think people would be very surprised you being a leader of one of the most important unions and an icon in the fight to have protection and dignity for coal workers and coal miners and me being a former environmental official for the Obama <laughs> administration. Not only we're close friends, but we've also been on the front lines together, been arrested together, been to jail together. To remind people of the fight that we were involved in to keep the pensions and, and health care from being stolen from coal miners just to give people a sense of how it is we actually wind up knowing each other. One of the other sides of the issues evolving around the change from fossil fuels to uh, renewables, carbon-free fuels to uh, generate electricity, created enormous numbers of bankruptcies throughout the coal fields. That's a side some people don't always see. 60 bankruptcies in, in about a year. People told us, well, you can't do anything about bankruptcy. Uh, bankruptcy judges are like God. They make these decisions and you just live with them. Early on, we said uh, we were not going to give up our jobs, our pensions, and our health care because some judge says that's the way it's going to be. 
And we also said, we don't know what we're going to do here, but it's, we're not going to give these jobs up and this health care up and these pensions up because people would earn them, right? That's right. So we gathered up about 500 of our leaders in uh, Charleston, and I was straight up honest with them. I said, look, this is going to be a tough fight. Right. But if people are going to get our pensions and health care, they have to take them. They're not, we're not going to hand them over. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm asking everybody to go home to their churches. And people in the coal fields, as you might have figured out by all the time you spent with us, highly religious, different denominations. So I asked people to go home and pray about it. And we started going to St. Louis and demonstrating. For people that don't don't understand all the details of it, you know, these big coal companies, now you and I might disagree. I think fracking had as much to do with some of these bankruptcies as as clean energy did. But Mm -hmm. regardless, you've got these big coal companies and they've decided, well, guess what? Things are, have changed in the marketplace. What we're going to do, we're going to throw all the coal miners under the bus. Their jobs are gone. You had people going in for generations, risking their lungs, risking their lives, risking their limbs to keep the lights turned on for America. And these coal companies said, you know what? You get none of your pensions. You get none of your health care. You're on your own. You're out the door. And it was such an affront to some of the toughest workers in the country to me, I didn't understand why the, we didn't have the whole country marching behind you. But it's one thing to think about in the abstract, to be on the streets with you guys and seeing all these tough coal miners going up against, uh, was, was Massey, what's the name of that terrible company? Well, we were demonstrating in front of Peabody's Peabody. uh, yeah, yeah. offices at the time mm-hmm. that you joined us. Right. And we had already, what we did at each rally, we designated X number of people go to jail. I think I went to jail about nine times during mm-hmm. that one year period. And we had like 13 people designated. You stood up out of nowhere and said, well, make that 14. That's like right. he was ordering something at Burger King, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I and, was moved, man. I was moved. You came, you came out and got in line and sat down in the road with us and uh, yeah. ended up in a paddy wagon with some coal miners. Yeah. And one of the most unusual things about that is obvious that you at one point in time, you might have been on the other side of this issue, but mm-hmm. right's right and wrong is wrong. And you, I still remember your speech. I don't know if you do or not, but mm-hmm. you, you, your remark towards it said, look, if I can be an environmentalist and, and fight to preserve wildlife and trees, that I can certainly stand up for human beings here right. today. Well, and I, I, I was moved by that. Well, by I appreciate that. And thank you for that. Well, thank you. And such a such a famous person going to jail like yourself, right? Well, so. I, 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 I tell you, it was. Um, I thought it was important. I was ashamed that the environmental movement overall had had not shown up. My view was, if we had, had been exposed that big coal companies were deliberately hurting spotted owls, or deliberately hurting snail darters, or deliberately hurting anything, we would have been completely outraged and gone after it, but deliberately hurting coal miners and most environmentalists didn't say a mumbling word. I was so ashamed of my own cause. I felt like I needed to be there. But to your point, the dignity of those workers, when you're seeing people who have literally given their lives to keep the lights cut on for America and they're marching some of them with oxygen that they're pulling behind them, because their lungs don't work well enough for them to to be out there without that kind of support. To hear you getting those folks who've been beat down, discouraged, afraid they wouldn't be able to go see a doctor in America after working 20, 30, 40 years in the mines to get them to march down that street and face those cops. I just couldn't stand there. 
I mean, I, I look like a fool with my suit. <laughs> you guys are you dressed for I think you took your jacket off. I did. I did. <laughs> you were uh, getting down and dirty. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, um, but I thought it was just important that uh, you never know if you're going to win. You never know if you're going to lose. But you should never fight alone when you're fighting for justice. That's how I, that's, I was raised that way. And but But actually, to your point, you won. We won. I mean, to talk about the victory. Ultimately, I mean, it didn't happen overnight. It took Congress. It took the president. It took a lot. But it was a long fight. But before we talk about other things, uh, I want people to know uh, you you got arrested nine times, but not for nothing. That's exactly right. So what? What? It wasn't just me. As a number of people did, and other unions came, and other prominent leaders in the labor movement were arrested, stood up with us. People kept continue to say, well, what's the end game here? These coal companies are not going to give you any money. At the end of the day, these three coal companies based in St. Louis said, look, if you'll quit picketing here, we'll give you some money. Hmm. And of course, we needed a lot of money to pay for health care for these retirees while we fought this out up on Capitol Hill. They gave us $400 million dollars now you know, wow. excuse my language. You know you're a pain in the ass. <laughs> when somebody will say, and one even even to add to that story, as we signed off on that, Peabody calls us up and tells our general counsel. They said, if you'll get these six retirees out in front of our office by six o'clock. We've got another ten million dollars for you, <laughs> <laughs> and I've I have affectionately called these retirees that they were making reference to the ten million dollar men. Right? <laughs> so, so people who say protests don't work, demonstrations yep. don't work. Oh. If your cause is just, that's right. If your cause is just, I think in this day and age you can still win. Well, I, I think that the bipartisan nature of it as well. In the course of that fight, Congress changed hands from Democrat to Republican, but you were still able to move it forward. And now we've gone from a Republican to a Democratic president. I want people to understand, you're the real deal. <laughs> you're, 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 you're somebody who has been able to take some of the most disregarded and disrespected workers and wring respect out of the system from both political parties to get an injustice reversed. But we still have a long way to go in the country, both to get more security for your workers and for all workers. We've got a long way to go. If we're going to make this transition to a renewable energy economy that respects the existing workforce, there's a lot of work to be done. But let's just start right now. Is Build Back Better something that you like or you don't? When uh, when President Biden was running, I'd, we had the opportunity to speak to him uh, at the AFL-CIO Executive Council. And I'm, I've known President Biden, all the way back to when he was Senator Biden and a fairly young man, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like somebody I was just meeting. Just like anybody else, I think you have to speak truth to power, too. I said, look, there's a lot of pain and suffering in these coal fields. And one of the things that I think is important, people didn't realize how many these bankruptcies and what they were doing to create poverty and unemployment and suffering and pain in these coal fields. A lot of folks... And me included, in the coal fields, we have this view that people don't know what's happening here and don't seem to care. Hmm. We've challenged people in office to say, we're tired of listening to these two words of a just transition. And the reason we're tired of that is we've been told this now for 20-some years, that this is going to happen. 
And I put it in a context that, that, that people in Appalachia believe there'll be a, the second coming of the Lord before they see a just transition. So how do you overcome that? Mm-hmm. Well, you have to feel it. You have to see it. And, and, and there has to be results. It can't be just, well, we're going to do, we'd like to do, and, right. and all of this. And that's what's been going on in Appalachia forever. This issue of unemployment, this issue of more poverty being created has not ended. We went through a period of about 10 years where 40,000 people lost their jobs in the coal industry itself. Then there's another four jobs for every coal mining job that exists in the coal fields. So that's another 160,000 people here that lost their jobs. So now we're talking about 200,000 people in some relatively small communities that depended on these jobs, the best jobs, union jobs, healthcare and pensions that's, that's been fighting for those things for now for 20 years. And so when people say, I'm going to fix all this, I've been around a long time and you know that, man. I've, I remember Lyndon Johnson coming. I actually remember John Kennedy when I was 14 years old, coming to Cabin Creek, my dad went out and met him, came back, so I shook Kennedy's hand, and he was so excited. My dad mm-hmm. spent 50 years in the industry, right? And then here comes Johnson, here comes Bobby Kennedy, here comes mm-hmm. everybody that's got, they're serious about helping. They're not just talking, they want to help. There's this saying that for so long in the coal fields and in, in Appalachia that Lyndon Johnson lost the war on poverty to the war in Vietnam. He wanted to do things to make things better for the people in Appalachia, mm-hmm. but the war took everything away. So people are skeptical. Right. People who have jobs want to keep them, and that's natural. Everybody's like that. People who have health care, they want to keep it. But here's what we've said. There are provisions in Build Back Better that are important to the people of Appalachia. There are, there are provisions in there for pe- lifting people, kids out of poverty. There was money in Build Back Better for pre-K. What do we need in the coal fields? What does everybody need, whether they're in the inner city or in the coal fields? They need, they need a chance. They need an opportunity for kids. And we need to start there. We need to make sure there's jobs. When you talk about a, a just transition, I mean, what, what you're talking about is the better people on my side of the table from the environmental community in our attempt to say that we care about you, say we want there to be a just transition. We don't want to, we don't just throw you under the bus. We want there to be a just transition. So that's a a, a slogan from, from our side that is attempting to show some goodwill, but on your side, it lands like a lead balloon because (laughs) you heard us say that for so long and there hasn't been much uh, justice or much transition that's been uh, helpful to you. I think that's important for people on our side to hear, to hear that. Yeah, there, there's this back and forth that's taken place in the coal fields with the environmental community for 30, 40 years mm-hmm. about, well, if we lose these jobs, we want to have a just transition. That's, and I'm sure people who say those things mean well, but it hasn't happened. Right. Uh, it, it just hasn't happened. So now people, when they hear those two words, they actually get upset about it because they're saying what you want is my job (laughs) what you want is my pension what you want is my health care that's and i I got it and i'm going to fight like heck to keep it and i don't think that's any different than auto workers Mm -hmm. losing their jobs in detroit i don't think it's any different than people who've been devastated in other parts of our country wanting to keep things let me just ask a question just because i've never asked you this before do you and does the union you know recognize that uh, 
climate change is happening and it's you know being driven by fossil fuels. Is, is that a controversial statement to you or is that a clear statement to you? I don't think you will ever find a statement from anyone in leadership in our union that's ever said there's no such thing as climate change. We've never denied that. That's never been one of our positions. With us is this, what do you do about that? Uh, How do you go about dealing with that? Back in the early days of the Obama administration, the Markey legislation that came out of the House had billions of dollars, billions of dollars for carbon capture sequestration investment. And we were supportive of that. We still are supportive of that. It goes over to the United States Senate and goes nowhere. It just dies right there in the Senate. And and people lost their jobs over that. Good friends of mine who were Democrats lost their jobs over that because people said, you tried to eliminate our jobs and nothing happened out of us. You voted with the wrong side. Let me make sure sure my audience knows what you're talking about. Carbon capture sequestration, uh, CCS, I actually was one of the people in the Obama administration that got that bill through the House. I was pretty proud of it. In fact, the overall uh, Markey Waxman bill, we had 100% of the Black Caucus in the House uh, vote for that bill, except for one guy, uh, Arthur Davis, who then became a Republican the next year. So 100% of the actual Black Democrats in the House voted for that bill. Part of what was in that bill was money for what's called carbon capture and sequestration to try to grab some of the carbon as it's being burned and stick it in their ground or stick it someplace else so it doesn't get a chance to go up in the atmosphere. Now, that technology is still to be developed, but that was a sign that if there was a smart and clean way to keep burning coal, we wanted to do it. But to your point, we got over to the Senate and got our butts kicked and stopped cold in our tracks, and that bill never got through the Senate, never got signed, never saw the light of day. And instead what happened is that, now I see it differently than you do, in addition to some of the clean energy stuff, fracking, natural gas fracking also took off. And so natural gas suddenly gets very cheap compared to coal. You've got other pressures coming in from other, and then suddenly now the coal community is in a real, real desperate situation. And you guys are still fighting. At the end of the day, natural gas, forget about how you get it for a few minutes here. Natural gas became abundant. For most of my life, for most of my career, natural gas prices were about twice as high on a BTU basis as coal. Mm. Natural gas was never a threat until fracking was discovered. And right. Then you, all this, this technology brought a lot of natural gas online, cheaper than coal. So all of these power companies said, well, heck, that's a cheaper way to generate electricity. They don't care how they generate it. Right as long as it's the price is right. Mm-hmm. And so that coal became uncompetitive. There are a number of things that we have suggested about how to help the coal field communities. One of the things people miss in this coal debate, I worked at a metallurgical coal mine. My dad worked at a metallurgical coal mine. You go up every hill and holler in West Virginia, Southern West Virginia or Eastern Kentucky, In Southwest Virginia, there's a tremendous amount of metallurgical coal and a number of mines have just closed. So why did those mines close? They don't generate electricity. We don't have this debate that that we have with the environmental community. And coal is still utilized for about, I think it's like 75, 80% of the production of steel in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, again, people who aren't as deep in this as you and I, Appalachia in particular has a kind of coal 
that burns so hot you can use it to melt and make steel. We say metallurgical coal. That's not true in Nevada. That's not true. But in in Appalachia, the coal that you pull out out of the ground and out of the, the mines there is a special kind of coal. And it can be used if you want to build a wind turbine in the United States, you're going to have steel in, in the tower. That Appalachian coal could be used to make the steel for that wind turbine. That Appalachian coal could be used for the frameworks for the solar arrays. Absolutely. We stopped producing steel in the United States. Think about this for a moment. Bethlehem Steel had 119,000 employees and they went into bankruptcy they went out of business what happened with the coal that was being supplied there they they owned their own coal mine 700 and some people lost their jobs overnight i worked for carbon fuel metallurgical coal those mines shut down at winterford i mine coal up cabin creek on the left end fork all those mines shut down there are so many metallurgical coal mines shut down in appalachia it would probably be a higher number of people who've lost their jobs because of the stopping the production of steel in this country and dependent on other people, other parts of the world where it's cheaper to produce the steel and bring it here than it is to, make, to produce it here in the United States. And we, we've advocated for bringing back the production of steel, obviously, which would bring the marketplace for metallurgical coal back where it used to be back in the 80s. So there is a deal to be cut between Appalachia and producing in the U.S. all the steel that needs to be created for the electric vehicles and for everything else. And that deal has not been cut because we can't get legislation done. But I think most people are not aware of that deal. So that one solution for you would be, hey, let us keep using the coal, but let's use it for U.S. rather than using, you know, from China to get a job benefit there. But then also maybe we can have a, a green aspect of that as well. But give me two more specific concrete examples of solutions that you like, that you think I might like as an American, as an environmentalist, so that my uncommon ground community can really get a sense that, hey, there's not a logjam here. Maybe there's at least a few things we could get done. A huge part of what we have proposed with respect to how to bring jobs back to Appalachia has to do with a number of things. If you manufacture or you produce steel in this country, all of the heavy investment we're talking about right now in rebuilding our bridges, uh, rebuilding our, some of our buildings and, and structures in the United States, our airports, steel has to come from someplace. And we're concerned that steel is probably going to be imported. We hope not. We hope it, it's produced here in this country. If that happens, there'll be more jobs in Appalachia producing coke. The other thing that we have suggested why are we importing wind turbines, for example, from China when we need jobs in Appalachia? We need jobs in a lot of locations that may not be in Appalachia, but coal miners who are unemployed, if you could bring those jobs where people could stay mm-hmm. in West Virginia and work in a manufacturing plant as opposed to importing these wind turbines from China. That's the craziest thing we're doing in this system. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. 
Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage in a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. On the Nintendo Switch system, there's so many worlds you can explore. Like Hyrule, where I can fight enemies and save the kingdom with Link. <laughs> that sounds adventurous. Or my very own island in Animal Crossing New Horizons, where I can fish whenever I want. the size of that thing! You can find even more worlds to explore on the Nintendo Switch system. Games rated E to E10+. Games and systems sold separately. So, like, I, I think you would get very little pushback from the at least mainstream environmental side. We would say putting coal into a coal-fired power plant to produce electricity that's hard for us. We'd rather see that be solar, rather see it be wind. Frankly, rather see it be natural gas. That's where you and I are going to have a fight because we don't like that. But when you talk about the kind of coal that could be used to support, from my point of view, a green industrial renaissance in the United States where you're putting people to work, repowering America in a clean way, there's common ground there. And there, we really should be, I think, highlighting that more than we are. I mean, when, when your members hear, say, Green New Deal as a slogan— do they mainly hear the New Deal or do they mainly hear the Green? In other words, do they mainly hear the jobs or do they mainly hear the, the Green? If the Green New Deal came into being next week, we wouldn't have a coal miner working anywhere in, in the United States in a very short period of time mining coal for the production of electricity. And a person who represents coal miners can't be for that. Right. I'm going to defend my members and, and keep them working as long as I can. But there's a way to do that. I know there's a lot of uh, people in the environmental community, for example, that doesn't believe in carbon capture and sequestration. Mm -hmm. they, they write that off as an excuse to continue to use fossil fuels, that it's a waste of money. I would point out that our folks in the environmental community are always looking at the United Nations panel on climate change. That very panel said you've got to have carbon capture and sequestration. Mm -hmm. Why is that? production of steel emits carbon into the atmosphere. You need that for the production of steel. There are so many jobs in the world that depend on certain aspects of the economy that emits carbon into the atmosphere. You need carbon capture for that. Set the United States aside for a minute. You've got places like China and India. If that doesn't happen, we do live in one world. I, I realize that. I think we all need to come to grips with that. And I know some in your community are saying, oh, here he goes. He's going to try to shift out of the United States to China or India. Point, only point I'm making here is there's been an increase in the utilization of coal and over the last few years in China and in India. And if we don't deal with that, right. carbon capture and sequestration is a way to deal with that and other emissions from other parts of the world. Many of these uh, undeveloped countries are telling us, uh, when I say us, the United States, look, don't come here 
mm-hmm. telling us what to do because you guys have prospered and that's why you're so wealthy that you've used this coal and other fossil fuels to generate electricity for years. Now you're coming here and telling us to live in poverty and we're not going to do it. So it, it's a worldwide problem. We have to figure out, we have to think more broadly about how to deal with this. You, you and I aren't going to have, have a big argument about carbon capture and sequestration. You like it more than I do and more excited about it than I am. But you make a strong point, which is that no matter what good policies we have in the United States, people are going to burn coal if that's if it's that or freeze to death or that or, or not have electricity for their kids, you know, smartphones and tablets all around the world. And any technological innovation, from my point of view, that can go toward mitigation, that can go toward helping us do what we're going to do better, I'm for. Again, you're more excited about it than I am, but we don't have a, we don't have an argument there. Let me ask some other questions about possible solutions. Number one, Andrew Yang got my attention talking about universal basic income and the idea that, and I think he was thinking more about computer technology, but as technology comes and and pushes people out of the workforce, there should be a guaranteed income for everybody to help them through and to figure that out. I don't think he talked enough about that when it comes to the technology of of solar panels and fracking, but would you feel better if there were a designated, targeted UBI, universal basic income floor, put in place in coal country? Is there a UBI deal to be done in Appalachia to help the remaining coal miners feel that there is going to be a just transition? Or is that, or would that be seen as welfare and you wouldn't even want it? No, that's not welfare, in my opinion. One of the things that we have suggested, and there's there's support on Capitol Hill, and I think I think there's support for this in administration, is people should be if they lose their jobs because of a policy decision made in the United States of America, and that could be in the past it could have been well we're not going to make steel anymore, mm-hmm. or it could have been uh, we're we're not going to have as many uh, domestic cars sold in this country. But if people lose their jobs because of a policy decision of their government, what we have said about coal miners is that they should have a wage uh, entitlement for a period of time, up to five years, mm-hmm. while they learn another skill, and we should be about the business of training those people to do something else. And on top of that, there's so much mine reclamation that needs to be done mm-hmm. throughout Appalachia. Talk about that. What, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? Mine reclamation. When you reclaim a mine, what does that mean? Yeah, here's here, there are different levels of this. Deep mines, underground mines, they need to be reclaimed too. What that means is there are drainage ponds, and there are different things left behind for mining. Surface mines are much more difficult. There's been a lot of terrain that may have been damaged. Now, the reason reclamation needs to take place now. When those companies went out of business, they were supposed to do the reclamation, right? Mm-hmm. So they paid into a fund, supposedly, or posted a bond, and there hasn't been enough money to do the mine reclamation. Somebody's got to do that. That could be union jobs right there, well-paying union jobs. If you could go back into Appalachia and pay people to beautify and to restore the beauty of their grandparents' mountains. There's dignity there. There's work there. Also, if you do it the right way, you start capturing a little bit of carbon because you're re-greening some of these places. Sure. And we don't talk enough about those kind of jobs. 
that, that's part of our that's part of our proposal, by the way, to to the administration and others as to what our way forward here. This helps people who don't have a job already, who used to make sixty five, seventy five, eighty thousand dollars a year, and now trying to make it on whatever they can find in Appalachia right now. And many people have moved out of uh, these areas seeking employment elsewhere and as we all know that that's a difficult proposition people have to leave a place that they were born in and yeah. live there that fourth fifth sixth generation coal miners don't necessarily want to pick up and, and go somewhere else particularly when they might be passing auto workers coming towards them trying to find a job that they've lost and uh, the quite the truth is this country doesn't do a very good job looking at auto plants, coal mines, or any other industry where there's been massive layoffs to try to find a way to help those people and lift them up. Folks need help when they lose their jobs. In this country, can do so many things militarily. We can't figure out how to do this side of the ledger. I think it's, it's, it's shame on us. So there is a deal to be cut. And part of what I don't like about the way politics has gone in America today is everybody just gets in their corner and starts yelling their points and nobody's looking for the deal. Now, there is a deal to be cut, I believe, that would at least get the remaining 50,000 coal miners treated better going forward than the 47,000 that you just talked about that got thrown overboard were treated in the past. I think we have a responsibility to do that. One of the reasons why you guys are so important, when people realize it's only about 50,000, 40,000 coal miners left, people say, well, why do we talk about them at all? You got 300 million people. Part of it is because we owe you a debt, but also you're politically powerful because you've got two Senate seats out of West Virginia alone, and those Senate seats matter a lot. Can we talk about, before we go, your beloved senator (laughs) from West Virginia (laughs) that's been driving Biden a little bit crazy? (laughs) Joe Manchin. Uh, Prime Minister Joe Manchin. I mean, I, I don't see you as being a, an obstacle to the better parts of the Build Back Better bill. From your own point of view, some of the uplift stuff, you're for it. But he was against the bill. And I can see a pathway where even you could be won over to doing some of the green stuff the right way. But he seems to be just standing in the way, both of the social side and the green side. He usually blames the coal miners for all of it. But you don't seem to be where he is. How do you see Joe Manchin? Before we go, how do you see Prime Minister Joe Manchin? So later, the foundation for this conference, part of the conversation, I've known Joe Manchin probably for close to 50 years, probably mm-hmm. 47, 48 years. I first met Joe when he was a senator in the state legislature. and He was a Democrat. Now, with respect to Bill Back Better, there's two things that's happened here I urged him to go back and continue to deal with the President of the United States. Some people in the media said, well, you're supporting the elimination of coal. I said, no. I told him, it was suggested to him, that he go back and continue this dialogue with the President. Because what you just, the point you've been making here, if people do not continue to talk, uh, there will never be an agreement reached. Early on in his uh, tenure in the United States Senate, he complained that nothing ever got done in the United States Senate, and I pointed that out. And the other thing I said, 
something has to be done. You might be surprised by this, and some of your listeners might respect the voting rights. We cannot allow people to continue to be denied a right to vote in certain states of the United States. Mm -hmm. And I came out strong on both of those points. I did not criticize him. I'm not going to be about the business of getting down in the gutter with people. One of the radio stations says, well, Big Bill Bader's got this provision, and it's going to let... I said, I never said him for him to accept everything and build back better. I said, we need to continue this dialogue, and I'd urge the senator to do that. And when it comes to voting rights, I urge every person in elected position to defend the voting rights of every single citizen of the United States, because if we don't have that, we don't have a democracy. Right. Wow. Uh, I just think that's really, really important. You know, uh, solidarity is a two-way street. We're always too small on our own to solve the problems that we face. Not only is there a benefit to the rest of society reaching out and making sure that you guys are treated fairly, you're saying you're reaching out behind the closed door to make sure everybody else is treated fairly. I don't think people know that. I don't think people know that. Well, let me let me tell you what I've said. My, you, you, you might be shocked to know that I have served on the Civil and Human Rights Committee at the FLCO since day one, and that's a committee I asked for. Uh, one of the things that, that I've said publicly in speeches is that every union leader should be a civil rights leader. Hmm. And every civil rights leader ought to be a, a union supporter. Tell me why. Because we got so much in common. Hmm. So much in common. Mm-hmm. How did you come to, listen, that, that's not often heard. How did you, at such a young age, come to such an enlightened view, and, and why have you fought for it for 40 years? My dad had an eighth grade education. But he never, in, in my lifetime, ever used a racial slur around me, ever. Mm-hmm. He had, I still think about this for a moment. In the coal camps when I was a child, we still had segregated parts of the, of the coal camps where all of the African-American miners lived. And one of my earliest memories is my dad taking me to get a hair cut when I was about four, and, and that was something I looked for, forward to because he'd buy me hot dogs while he drank beer <laughs> And after we got our hair cut, right? right? But he would stop at this friend's house, in, uh, an African-American, and they'd visit. Mm-hmm. And in those days, that was like 1952, mm-hmm. I guess. And I'm thinking, I never thought about that in a second, until later on in my life. I said, my gosh, I bet people were talking about my dad. That's something awful for doing that. But, right. And so he taught me. Long before Dr. King made the speech about to judge people about the content of their character, mm-hmm. my dad told me early on, there's two kinds of people in this world, son. Good ones and bad ones. You got to figure out which ones are good ones. He said to me, most people are good. So make your judgments that way. That's right. All right. Thank you very much. And thanks for getting arrested with us. Hey, listen, anytime. That's my favorite arrest. There's another There's another jail cell waiting on you. <laughs> I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. Till next thanks, time, man. brother. All right. Thanks. Love you, man. Love you, too. I really love talking to Cecil, and you know, honestly, I just don't do it enough these days. But I, I just think that uh, he's an example of the kind of leader that has a tough assignment and is trying to carry it out in a beautiful way with a lot of integrity. He's got to fight for his members' jobs, period. 
they didn't elect him to fight for penguins and polar bears. I mean, he's got a group of people who need to go to work every day. And yet, in the middle of carrying out that job, and a lot of progressives would say he should, he, there should be no coal miners, you know, there should be no coal anymore, we should all be solar. That's a, an understandable position that's closer to my position. But there's a reality of where does the rhetoric actually meet real people? Those of us who are progressives say we care about everybody, the bees, the trees, the butterflies, the bugs, the poor and everybody else. But then when real people raise their hand and say, hey, listen, I'm scared. I'm scared I'm not going to have a job. I'm scared I'm not going to have my pension. I'm not going to have health care. I'm not going to have a place. I'm not going to have dignity. We don't do enough to listen. And and Cecil does a great job of making it listenable <laughs> because he's just got that incredible way about him. He's got that that voice, that draw. But, you know, uh, that dude is tough as nails. And uh, we're lucky to have him in the leadership of the mine workers in this country because he cares about his members, but he also cares about others. The things that struck me the most, the whole carbon capture and sequestration thing, honestly, when I first got involved in this stuff 10, 15 years ago, I was like, you know, that's like asking, you know, we may as well just have unicorns eat up all the carbon. That technology didn't even exist. It's a big waste of money. All stuff he was saying, we, it, it's true, people didn't feel good about it. We only later came to understand how important it was for people who were coal miners to imagine that we at least were going to give them a chance to have technology to take some of the sting out of what they're doing. That at least we were willing to bet on them as much as we're willing to bet on solar and, and electric vehicles and everything else, that if there's going to be a round of technological innovation, could some of it help them and not hurt them? And that's that human dignity. Hey, you know, nothing about me without me. Include me, respect me, give me the same chance to give everybody else. Well, to the extent that progressives don't want to hear from anybody in the coal community, you miss sometimes how important some of these pieces of the deal are. Now, the reality is we did keep CCS in Obama's bill. We couldn't get it through the Senate, not because Obama didn't want to do it, but because Coke Industries and, and, and Big Oil and others you know, stepped in and just blocked all progress. And so the thing that hurts my feelings when, I talk, when I'm listening to him is his strong belief that it was Obama-era regulations from the government that hurt his community. And I think most of the math shows that it was not government policy because a lot of our government policies got blocked. <laughs> but it was, frankly, technology in the natural gas field, methane, that just you know made natural gas so cheap people didn't want coal anymore. But it has left now 10 years later this view that Democrats got in there and shut down coal. And therefore, we are, progressives and Democrats like myself, are enemies of working folks in Appalachia. And I think that is a very dangerous assumption to leave unchallenged. The same way Republicans should not allow it to exist in the atmosphere that maybe they don't care about African-Americans or maybe they look down on immigrants and Muslims and others. You just have to fight against that if you're a Republican. I think Democrats have to fight against this perception that a lot of working class white folks have that we just don't care about them, that their jobs aren't important, that you know, we care about every other kind of person in the world, but not them, because it leaves a poison. And that poison can get into anywhere it goes and cause all kinds of problems. It can lead to extremism on all sides. You have to fight against that stuff. 
and one of the great allies we have, I think, in the fight for a better understanding, in the fight for more camaraderie and solidarity, and the ability to ultimately get to a deal that's good for the planet and good for the people, is my good friend Cecil. Thank you for listening. This is Uncommon Ground. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Adesua Agbanile, Sundus Hassan Noli, and Lindsay Cradlewell. Our managing producers are Lauren D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for the show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Moraes, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Taylor Williamson, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwindeman, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Waltneen, Vanessa Rebert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jackman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hey, you. It's Jason Bateman. Have you listened to Smartless? Smartless is the podcast that I host with my friends who are more like brothers. The super talented and funny Will Arnett and Sean Hayes is... Jay, Jay, well, Jay, Jay, why are you, yeah. why are you whispering? Well, it, there's, there's a pst in the, in, the, in the copy. But people are listening, so it's like... They are listening. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. In each episode of Smartless, one of us reveals our mystery guest to the other two. What ensues is a genuinely improvised and authentic conversation. Our mystery guests span. Our mystery... We'll cut this out. Our mystery guests. All right, here we, we go. We got a lot of big famous people from different walks of life. And if you're yeah, a yeah, Wondery fan, then you're going to... stone. Yeah. Just you come and listen Tyson. to it. Yeah. We're on Wondery right now and you can listen yeah. to us. And no matter what you're doing, you're at the gym or you're in the car, just listen yeah. to the podcast. Sean, tell them where they can find it. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Bye. Bye. Bye.